Chapter 13, Finding Our Way Back Home, written by Adam Elliott. Once we begin to recognize the waypoints on our journey and fully understand God's original intent behind the laws, like keep the Sabbath, don't murder, don't covet, honor your parents, etc., we are then able to interpret previously unexperienced situations correctly. Let's look at the master of interpretation of God's laws, Jesus, and see how he applied wisdom and understanding of the Lord's vows to the new situations that he faced. As Luke 13 relates, we find Jesus teaching in a synagogue when a woman appeared who had been crippled by an evil spirit for 18 years and could not stand up straight. Jesus reached out, touched her, declared her free of the spirit, and immediately her body straightened. Yet, instead of breaking out in celebration and praise of the Father, an outcry rang out from the synagogue leader. There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Luke 13 and verse 14. Jesus had healed this woman on the Sabbath, which God's people at the time especially the leaders, interpreted as work and therefore forbidden. The synagogue leader made a valid point. There are six full days in which Jesus could have healed any person who needed it. So why risk working on the Sabbath day, the day in which all work is expressly forbidden under penalty of death, as Exodus 35 and verse 2 states. The synagogue leader like so many others, had interpreted God's vows, his law, from a perspective that ignored the very foundation from which they were given. Whether for selfish ambition, blind ignorance, or some other misguided perspective, God's vows were being used to do the very opposite of their original intent. Clearly, our synagogue leader of Luke 13 had forgotten or ignored God's waypoints along the path. Jesus, however, did not. In fact, Jesus got a little fiery as he rounded on the synagogue leader. You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her. Luke 13, verses 15 and 16. God's vows are always for the good of his people, because he is always and only good. Jesus demonstrated a wisdom and understanding that would have seemed like simple common sense to anyone who was walking in step with God's vows. Yet, to those who witnessed the healing, those who lost perspective on the vows, Jesus' interpretation seemed like madness. Imagine a husband who loves his wife and fills their marriage early on with acts of kindness and service, demonstrating his love and keeping his vows. As the months go on, the husband becomes consumed in work, 
picking up extra shifts for the overtime pay in order to better support his wife. He wants to buy her nice things and take her on trips to show her how much he loves her. Soon, the extra purchases create a drain on their finances, which causes the focus to shift from showing love through extra gifts to showing love by providing for their increased lifestyle. This new focus and vicious cycle is born out of the same vows that began the marriage, but without the wisdom and understanding that come from their origin, these same vows become the justification to finally walk away from the marriage. Originally, the vows were built from the love expressed by a man and woman who see in the other their treasured possession, the one that matters most in this world. When that focus shifts to anything else, wisdom and understanding are replaced by a false reality that will inevitably lead to a broken relationship. God warns of this reality in Deuteronomy 8, verses 10 through 19, and leads us to our seventh waypoint. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Waypoint number seven. God gives his law so that we will not forget him. Forget me not. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Or so the misguided saying goes. Although it works in the movies, absence only makes the heart grow fonder for someone else. Absence ultimately leads to the replacement of the one being missed. That is, the things on which a relationship is built are not unique or exclusive to that relationship. They are the same needs and desires on which all relationships are built. Human nature is to have those needs and desires met. This is the unfortunate reality of affairs in marriage. When some part of the relationship is not being met at home, someone somewhere else will fill that void. God only wants to preempt this heartache by setting up practices, boundaries, and routines in which our needs and desires are both found and fulfilled by Him. He knows our time on this earth will be hectic and full of moments that would draw our attention from Him. He knows we will be tempted to move on from those feelings of new love and commitment to being overwhelmed by the pressures or pleasures of this world. 
This is the story played out over and over again with Israel. This is the story of Jesus' parable of the sower, Matthew 13. And it is the same story of the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. When we forget our first love, when we forget the foundation from which our vows were made, we will undoubtedly replace the one to whom we have vowed with someone or something else. God knew this to be true, and through Moses, he not only warned them of their future infidelity, but reassured them of the eternal quality of his vows. He promised that he would never forget his bride. He vowed to never replace her. He created within his law, his vows, the means by which reconciliation is possible. Returning to Deuteronomy 4, God sets the stage. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Deuteronomy 4, 25 through 31. Waypoint number eight. God gives his laws so that we may know how to get back when lost. Return. Pop quiz. What do you call the process of turning away from the world and making your life right with God? If you answered repentance, ding, 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 you win the prize. Repentance is not a new concept among Christians, nor is it one that brings with it much confusion or controversy. Repentance is traditionally taught as a 180-degree turn from sin. We apologize for our behavior and promise to not do it again. Repentance is a central teaching and understanding in the process of salvation. It is also one of the major areas in which our map has been tampered with. To repent is certainly a turning point, but to what are we turning? Or perhaps a better question and understanding is, to whom are we returning? God declared through Moses in Deuteronomy chapters 4 and 30 that when his people 
have gone astray and profaned his name, polluted the land, and abandoned their vows, the only way to make things right again is to return to him. This same cry is echoed through the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi. Let's make a couple of stops through the prophets on our journey to discovering God's original intent for the law. But by all means, don't hesitate to investigate the other prophets on your own. Isaiah 54, verses 5 through 8, reminds us of the relationship between God and His people. For your Maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is His name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth He is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. He declared once again his everlasting love in which he will always seek the return of his bride, while his laws serve as the means by which the relationship can be made whole. Isaiah 55 verses 6 and 7 echoes the words of Deuteronomy 4 in which God is willing to be found by his wayward wife if she will seek him with her whole heart. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. Can you imagine an unfaithful bride who has committed adultery time and time again returning to her husband without forsaking her adulterous ways. Both the husband and the wife would have to be insane to think that that marriage could be salvaged and rebuilt. Repenting, that is to say, returning to the marriage for reconciliation, can only be accomplished if the original vows are fulfilled. And that is because it is those vows that govern the whole heart. Those vows are the foundation of love, the boundaries of protection, and the means of return. It is this requirement to return with their whole heart that causes problems for God's bride. Jeremiah 3 recalls the tragedy where God finally had enough of the faithlessness of his bride, Israel, and the treacherous pretense of her sister Judah. Because Israel had proven repeatedly that she could not remain a faithful bride, God gave her a certificate of divorce and sent her away, scattering her among the nations. Verse 8. Judah, even after seeing the devastation and divorce of Israel, continued to do the very thing God warned them not to do, and then had the audacity to return with her fingers crossed behind her back. 
In Deuteronomy 4, there is a warning against Israel turning away from God that culminates in them worshiping false gods and idols of wood and stone. Remember, the giving of God's laws are housed in the vows of marriage. Jeremiah recounts the tale of Israel and Judah's unfaithfulness in the exact same terms. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Verse 9. Yet Judah returns only in pretense. She does not return in the required manner, seeking God with her whole heart. Deuteronomy 4 and verse 29. Israel, on the other hand, has shown herself to be more faithful, and God speaks through Jeremiah words of reconciliation. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will frown on you no longer, for I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. You have rebelled against the Lord your God. You have scattered your favors to foreign gods under every spreading tree and have not obeyed me, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 through 14. And again, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Jeremiah 4, 1 and 2. Foundation repair. How do you make things right when you've made a mistake? Although people may apologize or repent in a variety of ways, no apology or repentance is complete without acknowledging one's guilt. The Hebrew word translated as acknowledge is yada, which bears the weight of intimate knowledge. This is the same word that is used euphemistically to describe the conception process of husband and wife. Genesis 4, verse 1. In other words, when God declares that Israel must acknowledge her guilt, he doesn't mean that he wants her to hang her head, mumble an, I'm sorry, and appear somber for some amount of time. No. God needs her to know her sin intimately. But what is the only way she could possibly know her sin on that level? By comparing it to the standard of her vows. It is in the returning to God, to their husband, to their marriage, to their vows, that Israel is able to be made whole and receive again the blessings promised at the wedding ceremony. It is only in returning to the light that she can truly know the depth of the darkness she leaves behind. We see this in Nehemiah 8 where Israel had finally been restored to Jerusalem after having lived in exile among a people not devoted to the one true God. Once restored, Israel is, at last, able to pop in the wedding video and replay that incredible moment. As you would expect, tears began to flow. 
Yet these were not tears of sweet memories or even tears of joy. These were tears of shame and guilt and of deep regret. As the vows begin to be read, Israel realizes in utter despair that they have kept none of them. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Nehemiah 8, verse 1 and 9 through 12. Here, we find our waypoint brightly illuminating the path of Israel. God gave his vows for the good of his bride. Those vows provide understanding and wisdom, and they are the means of returning if and when she becomes lost. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites cry out to Israel, Do not mourn, but rejoice! It's almost like a reality TV show. Out jumps the host and reveals the plot twist. Israel isn't simply watching their wedding video to reminisce, but they are actually being prepared for a ceremony to renew their vows. The video clicks back on, and this time, it isn't the wedding, but the entire chronicle of their love story, both the good and the bad. See Nehemiah chapter 9. As the video draws to a close, the officiate, the Levites, stands and declares, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Nehemiah 9 verse 38. The renewal covenant is brought out and just Like the original marriage license, all parties are signed to the covenant. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do 
all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Nehemiah 10, verses 28 and 29. The vows are renewed. Once again, till death do they part. Israel has returned to her husband. Once again, through her vows, she has the understanding, wisdom, and ability to live in right relationship with her husband. It's here we see that repentance is not a simple turning from sin. Repentance is a returning to the original contract with a heart that lives out the vows from the foundation of the first love. At the first, I do. This is the heart behind the words Jesus instructs John in Revelation to write to the church in Ephesus. Jesus affirms the toil and patient endurance with which the church at Ephesus is bearing his name. But he holds this against them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Return and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you return. Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5. First things first. It isn't that the church has completely rejected God and turned to a new lover, but they have abandoned the love they had at first and stopped the works that went along with that foundation. At first glance, this letter seems a little confusing. How can Jesus commend the works and toil and patient enduring of the Ephesians while simultaneously accusing them of forgetting the love they had at first? How can he affirm them and call them to repent? Remember that repent and return are synonyms. They mean the exact same thing. I want to offer an interpretation here that is certainly not mainstream. Please allow me to present a case for why Jesus' words here may very well be the exact same words God spoke through the prophets and the same appeal Jesus made to and through his disciples before he left this earth. Jesus makes a distinction between two different groups of works in his letter. See if you can catch them. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But... I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Return and do the works you did at first. Revelation 2, 3-5 The first group of works, the ones he commends, are those done in his name. Verse 3 The second group of works, the ones he holds against them, and for which he demands them to return, are those connected to the love they had at first. Ask yourself, how can a person endure patiently, toiling in the name of Jesus, yet forget the love and works they began with? 
It has always seemed like spiritual gymnastics to claim they somehow loved Jesus better in the beginning, but now they are just toiling away with less love. If we remember the journey we have been on throughout the last chapter, and in this chapter make a couple of extra stops, I think we will arrive at a conclusion that ties this whole journey together neatly with a big black X that marks the spot. God gave His commands as wedding vows for the good of His bride to safeguard and prosper the marriage and provide a path to reconciliation should it be necessary. He sent prophet after prophet with the same message of repenting, returning to Him, and keeping the vows, His commands and statutes, as they did in the beginning. He repeatedly called them back to the wedding at Sinai. Jesus makes several comments throughout His teaching, insisting that He has come only to speak that which God told him to speak, the very same words God has been speaking all along. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until everything in the law comes to pass. Matthew 5, 17-18, emphasis mine. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. Jesus did not come to eliminate the law, which are the vows. Neither did he ever speak on his own authority. He spoke the very words of God, just as he was directed and just like every prophet before him. When Jesus commanded his disciples to go into all the world, make disciples, and teach them to obey everything he commanded, Matthew chapter 28, according to his own words in John 12, he was commanding obedience to God's commands and not his own. From the beginning of time, God has been the lawgiver and no one else. After Jesus gave authority 
to his disciples to carry out his task of making the Father's commands known, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, the nations as well. Predictably, problems arose. Conflicts and arguments over rights of sonship and who is allowed into the family of God began to cause such a stir that a council was held in Jerusalem to settle the matter. Traditionally, the passage in Acts chapter 15 has been used as a hammer passage to prove that Gentiles, the church, Christians, are not obligated to keep the law. However, when we read this passage with our waypoints linked to Revelation 2, we find an alternate reading, one that beautifully synthesizes our whole journey from beginning to end and requires no acrobatics to harmonize the context. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. This is the same language that God used on Sinai and also sounds very much like wedding language. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Again, think about how at the wedding, the bride takes on a new name. Says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Acts fifteen thirteen through 21 James quotes directly from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12, when declaring that God had already promised that he would draw the Gentiles to himself, calling them by his own name when he restores the tent of David. The nations, the very Gentiles that Jesus sends his disciples out into, will be called by God's name only in the context of restoring his bride. With this in mind, James proposes a starting point for those Gentiles who have already accepted Jesus as Messiah, but whose ways are incredibly offensive and prohibitive of unity with the Jews. Tell them to cut out the idol pollution, sexual immorality, unclean food, and the eating of blood the very things that would result in being cut off from God's presence and God's people. The Lord declares in Leviticus 17, verses 10 through 12, that anyone who eats blood 
is to be cut off from God's people, whether born of the house of Israel or one who sojourns with them. Think Gentile. Leviticus 18 describes a multitude of sexually immoral relationships in which verse 29 provides the punishment of, once again, being cut off from God's people. Leviticus 20 verses 22 through 25 explains that God's people should not make themselves detestable by any type of unclean animal, like the nations he was driving out before them because he detested them. Finally, idolatry is adultery against the Lord, since it is choosing to have an affair with a foreign god. Jeremiah 3 shows the consequences of infidelity when God serves Israel with a decree of divorce. These four prohibitions are laws that simply make it impossible for God's people to be united with any other. If the Gentile believers in Jesus do not leave behind these detestable practices, there is no way imaginable that they can be unified with those Jews who are following Jesus and keeping God's vows. Revelation 2, written to the church in Ephesus, a church of Gentile believers, describes a people who have come to believe in Jesus as Messiah. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but you have forgotten your foundation, the love you had at first, and the vows that went with them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Return and do the works you did at first. This is why James finishes his appeal in Acts 15 after prohibiting four major non-negotiable sins with the reminder that the words of Moses are read in every synagogue throughout the known world on every Sabbath. Take a look at a step-by-step process of a Gentile coming into relationship with God. 1. Through miraculous signs and teachings of the disciples of Jesus, Gentile Joe comes to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. 2. Major abominable practices are cut out of Gentile Joe's life. No more idol worship, sexual immorality, strangled things, and eating of blood. 3. Unity is now attainable, and Gentile Joe is welcomed into the synagogues to learn the meaning of the vows that form the basis of the love story he has stepped into, to learn every Sabbath from the words of Moses about the God behind the Savior. 4. Gentile Joe begins living out these vows in his daily life as he desires to grow closer to his maker. From bride to roommate. Marriage counselors refer to something called the roommate phase, when a couple is no longer working out of the love and vows that got them down the aisle in the first place. It isn't that they have rejected each other, 
but they are no longer committed to working out of their vows. They are living as roommates, not husband and wife. As we step into Jesus' letter to the church in Ephesus, we find them here in the roommate phase. Here is the basic reality of being in right relationship with God. It is impossible to come to the Father without going through the Son. John 14 and verse 6. And it is equally impossible to get to the Son without going through the Father. John chapter 5. Too many Christians have striven diligently in and for the name of Jesus, all the while forgetting and ignoring the very God who sent Jesus as Savior in the first place. We must be careful not to find ourselves in the same position as those in Ephesus. Come with me to our second-to-last waypoint in our journey as Malachi offers, once again, God's words of hope for his bride to be reconciled. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 3, verse 1 and verses 6 and 7. Waypoint number 9. God does not change. Forever. Now, this is an incredible thing. If God does not change, then all our previous waypoints are cemented into eternity, and the context of those points are stuck right there with them. Let me explain. The prophets have been crying out for God's bride to return to his laws, to the vows they took on Mount Sinai. As we have seen, it is in this return that the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth outside of Israel, find their context for entering into relationship with the one true God. Amos 9, Acts 15. Malachi forever links the unchanging nature of God with this plea for his bride, his treasured possession. To return to him. Malachi 3, 17. Also see Exodus 19. And if this link isn't enough, God speaks through Malachi one more layer of context that brings us to the end of our journey. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi 4, 1 through 6. As we reach the end of what we refer to as the Old Testament, the very last written step before Jesus walks onto the scene is one of God placing his unchanging nature and plea for the return of his bride squarely in the context of the coming of Messiah and his messenger Elijah. Jesus declares John the Baptist to be Elijah, Luke 1, 17, Matthew 17, and verse 12, whom God has sent to prepare the way. Do you see what this means? If God does not change, and from Exodus to Malachi, he has married and then chased his bride through the vows he gave them at their wedding at Sinai, And he sends Elijah, John the Baptist, to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus. Then neither John nor Jesus can possibly have any other message than return. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Return! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Return, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4, verse 17. From the first footfall of John and Jesus in our Bibles, they declare the same message that we have heard all along. Repent. Return to your God, your husband. From Sinai to Revelation, from Moses to the prophets to Jesus, God has only had one goal for his law, to live in peace and harmony with his people. Do you see what this means? Let's look back on all the waypoints we've hit on God's map. Waypoint number one, God is always and only good. Waypoint number two, God speaks his laws, commands, for the good of his people. Waypoint number three, God's priority is the renewal of his people's identity, not just defeating the bad guy. Waypoint number four, 
God gives his laws to set apart his people, his bride. Waypoint number five, God gives his laws as a sign, proof of his covenant, his I do. Waypoint number six, God gives his laws for our wisdom and understanding. Waypoint number seven, God gives his laws so that we will not forget him. Waypoint number eight, God gives his laws so that we know how to get back when lost. Waypoint number nine, God does not change. So what does it all mean? It means that God is a one woman man and his singular purpose has always been to restore his bride to a right marriage with him. This marriage from day one has included any and all people who would attach themselves to his bride, both native-born Israelite and sojourning Gentile. It means to be in right relationship with God, there is one set of vows to be taken, passed down through Moses, then the prophets, and ultimately the Messiah. It means that we who are of the nations, Gentiles, ought to take a really hard look at our lives and our relationship with God. Is it founded on the same things that God has proclaimed since the beginning? Is it founded in the same words and actions taught, modeled, and commanded to be spread to all the world? Have we come to the flock that God established, or have we started our own? John 10, verse 16. Have we been grafted into the established, cultivated olive tree, or have we remained our own wild olive tree? Romans 11. Have we come to a relationship with the Son while ignoring the Father? Our last waypoint is tied up in words of encouragement. Waypoint number 10. It is not too hard. You got this. Mark and I have talked with so many people about all of these things. We have been hit repeatedly with objections, pulling out some of the most obscure and difficult-sounding laws in God's Torah. The sentiment and challenge is that we ought to just praise God that we do not have to follow those old, difficult laws anymore. But remember the waypoints on God's map. God's laws are His vows to us, of His promise to always do good by us. He promises to put us first as his treasured possession, if we will but only do the same for him. Could you imagine sitting at a wedding, and as the officiate recites the vows and says to the groom, Do you take your bride to have and to hold, till death do you part? And as the audience waits in eager anticipation of an emotional, Yes. The groom responds with, whoa, hold on just one second. Uh, Those vows are way too difficult for me to keep. 
Besides, those are the old vows. Where are the new ones? There would be a wave of shock ripping through the audience as they all question whether they really heard what they think they heard. Yet this is exactly what the church today has done to the vows of God. We have claimed that the old vows are too hard and we need new ones, easier ones. Listen to God's own words in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. In God's own words, living in right relationship with Him, according to His good plan, is not too hard. You can do this. What a journey we've been on. Please don't stop searching and seeking and testing God's word to find truth. The things covered in this chapter are only the beginning. If you will hold them in mind as you read God's word, you will see these waypoints over and over and over again. God is always good. He is always waiting. Will you? Return to him.